Money FM 89.3, best of workday afternoon. Hello and welcome into the health suites of Money FM 89.3. I'm Melissa Hyak. And joining me today is Associate Professor Jack Tan, Head and Senior Consultant at the Department of Cardiology, the National Heart Centre, Singapore. Hello, Prof Tan. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for getting me to the program. No, thank you for agreeing to come, you know. Um, okay, let's let's go straight into to this, right? Uh, leaky heart valve. The Latin name for it is tricuspid regurgitation. Is that right? Uh, yeah, maybe I can take a step back and just briefly explain what the valves do and uh, which part of the heart is this tricuspid regurgitation. Just uh, give me one or two minutes for that. Um, for, for the audience, I, I think most will think of the heart as one structure, but there are four separate chambers. Two on top actually collects blood from the body. Two below the ventricles pump blood. So if you can think of it, the chambers on the right side, the atrium, collect blood from the body. The atrium on the left side collect blood from the lung. And the ventricles mm-hmm. pump blood to the lungs and to the rest of the body. So when we talk about heart valves, we're talking about one-way trapdoor, so to speak, so that blood, once it goes through one chamber, it doesn't come back out. So when you refer to tricuspid regurgitation specifically, you're referring to a leaky valve on the right side of the heart that guards blood from the rest of the body to the lungs. So if it's leaky there, instead of going to the lungs, pump out by the heart to go to the lungs, it gets ejected back to the rest of the body when there's tricuspid regurgitation. Okay, then how is that different from mitral regurgitation? Oh, the mitral valve is the valve that guards the blood on the left side. Remember we said on the left side, it collects blood in the atrium from the lungs and it pumps blood to the rest of the body. Mm. So if there's mitral regurgitation, the blood is ejected and leaks back towards the lungs. In tricuspid, it leaks back towards the liver, the kidneys, and the right side of the body. So when we talk about leaky heart, are we talking about both or just one of them? Oh, uh, commonly is one, but occasionally is both. So it depends on the etiology. Sometimes you can have leaky valves on the left side, like a mitral regurgitation, mm. sometimes tricuspid, sometimes both. And uh, we, we see that quite commonly. Quite commonly? Like how common is it in, among Singaporeans? Actually, the worldwide prevalence for leaky tricuspid or mitral that is severe is up to 0.5 to 1% of the population that has severe leakage of valves either on the mitral or tricuspid site. So and in some very unlucky, unfortunate patients, they can have both simultaneously. They're severe in nature. Okay. So when we talk about severe, um, severity, right, uh, what would constitute you know, those who have this sort of severe uh, condition? So I, I think we gauge it by how, how much of the blood is leaking backwards on our heart scans, typically our ultrasound scan of the heart. But more importantly, it's the symptoms. So let's say the tricuspid valve, when it's severe and there's a lot of backflow of blood into the body, damming of the blood back into the liver, into the abdominal cavity, lower limb. So you have swelling everywhere, as well as hardening of the liver. Those patients we categorize as severe in nature for the back leakage. Right. So when we go see, um, you know, our GPs, right, or when we get our health scanned, and if they see an issue with um, our liver, for example, all right, um, are they likely to also run a quick check also on whether or not we might have this leaky heart condition? Because from from the numbers, right, it seems like highly fatal, can we say it? Because like one in, I read, right, anyway, that more than one in three people, if they're diagnosed um, and they're untreated, 
um, they could die within one year. That, that's a great point, Melissa. So, uh, unfortunately, leakages on the right side happens to be quite insidious. So, by the time the general practitioner or doctor picks up the swelling, the enlarged liver and the water in the tummy, this the tricuspid regurgitation or this leaky valve has been going on quite a long time. Mm. So they, they can refer in and usually the doctor can hear a murmur in the heart. The patient typically complains of fatigue and breathlessness. Mm. And uh, this, this is when they probably need to come to the National Heart Centre and get it sorted out. Okay, but these are these two are fairly, uh, how would you say, fairly common uh, symptoms, right? That can be experienced, um, you know, with other sort of conditions. Like some people say that when they have long COVID, they also have breathlessness, right? So, what are the other symptoms that we should be looking out for that are sure red flags? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Melissa. That's why this uh, condition is actually quite insidious and difficult for people to pick up until it's late, because, like you said. A lot of people present with some minor breathlessness, fatigue, and it's quite non-specific. So the other more uh, obvious signs are leg swelling, uh, tummy enlargement, loss of appetite, and uh, the doctor, when examining, will find a very engorged liver or very visible uh, vein pulsations in the neck. Mm. So uh, again, the signs are not very uh, concrete unless people put it together in one piece. So, okay, so so if you have those symptoms, right? You think you have those symptoms. Sorry, I'm thinking about my dad, right? Because his leg is like okay. slightly swollen. Um, and and you go to your your regular doctor, and they don't pick up on it. Um, you know, how do you manage the patient flow to National Heart Centre? Because you also do not want to have people who, you know, for every bit of breathlessness or every every bit of like you know swollen leg to go to to, yes, to yes, crowd yes, the National Heart Centre too, right? We, we really don't want uh, a huge flood of patients after today's call to get worried and come to us. So what, what I would suggest is that for patients who have these symptoms of lower limb swelling, breathlessness, inability to sleep well at night, please go to your general practitioners first. A quick physical examination by the physician would be able to pick up these signs of severe tricuspid regurgitation. Okay. And then they can refer inappropriately because, like you said, lower limb swelling, if your dad really has... Some, you have to make sure the kidneys are all right, okay. the livers are all right, over and beyond the heart condition. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I think for people in their 80s, you know, the kidneys <laughs> and liver are also, you know, not doing, yeah. you know, not performing 100%. But you're right, you know, just always consult the doctor. I know also that doctors kind of, you know, you have, now, now that we have Google, everyone is like, you know, a quack, right? I find they go into the clinic, they're telling the doctor, are you sure I don't have this? Are you sure I don't have that? Yeah. So we're trying to strike a balance between, you know, raising um, the issue with uh, doctors and also not, how would you say, getting in their way of, of doing proper diagnosis, right? But but let's, let's maybe um, go look at um, actually two exciting, or rather two exciting pieces of information that's come out about new procedures um, at the National Heart Centre um, that are actually minimally invasive compared with maybe other kinds of, you know, uh, heart uh, surgery that tend to be, I think, not just more invasive, but also um, come with more complications after. Yeah, so uh, maybe i just quickly state the fact that what you say is absolutely correct. Previously, if you just want to correct a heart valve issue, you have to do open heart surgery. Particularly for the tricuspid valve, the mobility and mortality rate of Open surgery is very high, and surgeons tend not want to do surgery for isolated tricuspid regurgitation. So they can go in if they are refixing the left-sided valves, and they may put a ring around the tricuspid valve. But short of that, the surgeons are very reluctant to mm. offer procedures. For the non-invasive option, uh, recently at the heart center, 
uh, we have two specific procedures that can address this condition, and therefore it has also increased our physician awareness for this. Uh, one procedure is what is termed as a triclip or H-to-H repair. So if you can think of it, the valve is leaky. One possibility is to repair the valve itself by clipping the leaky edges together, mm. almost like a tower clip. Uh, this is also done percutaneously through the groin uh, as a procedure. The other procedure is if, for example, the problem exists elsewhere and it's not directly correctable by a clip procedure, for example, the ring or the valve is very engorged, then you may have to replace it with what is called a trick valve, which is a bicable valve. Uh, we, we don't touch the valve itself because the valve is not repairable percutaneously. So we deploy artificial valve on top and below the 40 valve to access surrogate tricuspid uh, valve to guard the backflow. So these are the two procedures that we have for a variety of uh, patients to treat this uh, condition of tricuspid regurgitation. I see. But what about any sort of post-surgery complications? I mean, all procedures I know will have some amount of, um, what do you call that? Um, Not contraindications, uh, complications, potential complications, right? So what are those for for these two procedures? So the main complication for the H2H, what is called a clip maneuver or tri-clip procedure is that it's very imaging dependent. It also depends on the frail fragility of the valve leaflet. So the most common complication up to 7% of the patients, sometimes even after a successful grasping of the leaflet, it can get dislodged. So the leaflet can tear through the clip because it's uh, subject to constant force and you have to go in for a surgical bailout or repair. Mm. For the trick valve, the main limitation is the anatomy of the implant because some anatomy is just not suitable to put in artificial uh, valves in other places. And the most common complication, touch wood, you haven't seen it, is clotting of this artificial valve if the patient is not compliant to their blood thinness. Okay. Okay. And how long do these procedures take? Um, you know, how long would one have to stay in the hospital for it? Uh, because it's percutaneous compared to a surgery where they have to stay up to a week or 10 days. This, if there's uncomplicated, probably in the next uh, one to two days, the patient can be discharged. Um, because actually there's no open wound. Uh, once it's done, the patients have quite a remarkable immediate uh, uh, symptom relief, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, the stay, length of stay in the hospital is actually very short. Okay. Just observe them, put them back on the blood thinners, then they can uh, pack up and go home, actually. Oh, okay. And what kind of follow-up uh, would they need to have? Um, they will need clinic follow-ups and uh, scans to make sure that the uh, function, the kidney and the blood thinners are are properly titrated and to make sure that the valve, uh, if it's H-to-H repair, the clips are in place and we also want to monitor them to make sure that the heart chambers remodel, meaning that because it's previously so engorged, whether they can reverse this process and hopefully the other organs like the kidneys Mm. and liver can stabilize as well. Mm. Now, throughout this afternoon, I've been telling our, our listeners that, you know, they tend to affect the elderly more right, 75 years and above. Um, But what about uh, younger people? Is there the possibility that younger people can also have leaky heart? Um, Actually, uh, it's correct that you say there's probably a bimodal band to the uh, incidence. For the younger people, they can be associated with uh, inborn heart valve uh, disorder, uh, either a congenital issue like uh, abstance or what's called Marfan syndrome, where the valve tissue is no good, 
so they become leaky. Uh, in the older age group, as they get older, the valve can become harder, they can tear easily, they can become more calcific and fibrous. Mm-hmm. So it's the other age group. The most common condition for the left side actually is this condition called mitral valve prolapse. So mm-hmm. it's a, a floppy valve that tends not to close well, and that is the most common uh, inborn condition we're seeing now for leaky valves on the mitral side. Okay, and the same procedures would apply for them? Um, for the mitral leaflet, currently we're using an HOH, the clip mm. procedure. We don't have a valve replacement procedure at the moment for the left side okay. for the mitral valve. Okay. Okay. Anything we can do to prevent or to mitigate the development of this condition? Like, um, like Riley put it, uh, if you can identify the problem early, sometimes medication does help quite a fair bit. So, for example, like that, if you have an issue, please give me a call. Okay. I'll be happy to see him as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that offer. And, but but yeah. I'm wondering, are there lifestyle changes that we can make, uh, dietary changes that we can make that can give us a better chance of not developing the condition or at least recovering from the condition? So, so I would say for the aged uh, group, a lot of these patients have associated uh, comorbidities that make the outcome worse, like diabetes, hyperpressure, mm. high cholesterol. So all this, like you rightly put it, lifestyle mitigation, uh, avoidance of a very salty or oily diet or uh, 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 glucose-like diet will, will definitely help in terms of general health on top of the leaky uh, valve. Diet by itself doesn't address this uh, functional leaky valve issue. But um, uh, it does help with general health. Yeah, it does sound like everything goes back to the same thing, huh? Exercise regularly and eat healthily. <laughs> a balanced meal and all that. Yeah, yeah. If I see it, it sounds so fundamental. Okay, maybe yeah. one, one last question. Yep. New procedures typically, at least from our point of view, right, will cost a lot, right? So um, what kind of costs are we looking at for, for the procedures, right? And, and importantly, of course, you know, how are they covered by MediSafe? Um, at, at the moment, uh, the procedure is uh, on the mitral side, currently covered uh, by our MOH subvention guidelines if that's qualified. So they, the subsidy guidelines will cover based on your class status. For the tricuspid side, we don't have a framework yet. So these devices, if not currently not subsidized, are indeed very costly. We're talking about tens of thousands of uh, dollars just for the device itself beyond the procedure. Right. So I hope um, it not what's unsaid is that you guys are trying to work towards getting that onto the framework for subsidy as well. Yeah. So that takes time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Jia <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Associate Professor Jack Tan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us and, and educate us on, on this condition. Yeah. No problem. Welcome. Much appreciated. Thanks. I've been speaking with Associate Professor Jack Tan, Head and Senior Consultant, Department of Cardiology at the National Heart Centre, Singapore. I'm Melissa Kapp for the Workday Afternoon, and you are with MoneyFM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.